is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. Welcome to Bad Boys and Beyond. I am your host, Mike Payton. With me, as always, is your other host, Keith Black Trudeau. Uh, this week on the show, we're we're um, you know we're 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 covering. I guess I I don't know. Maybe a darker subject. Maybe uh, I don't know. We we just we we had a lot of talk about how we were going to cover this one and if we were going to cover this one. And and here we are. We're doing it. We're got we're doing Bison Daily today. Very interesting player. Uh, very interesting story, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking to Keith about that. But um, before we get into that, this is a big week. This is the trade deadline week. I mean, there's we might break news on this show here today. <laughs> it, it might happen. Uh, <laughs> so far, it's Tuesday. It's 523 in the p.m. Nothing has happened other than the Kyrie Irving trade that uh, that happened late Sunday night, early Monday morning. Uh, I'm interested of your thoughts on that because I just can't understand why any team in the NBA, let alone a team that's trying to build around a superstar player in Lake Luka Dantich, would want Kyrie Irving on their basketball team after he has demonstrated that he he's a problem. You know, I don't like the way that locker room cancer and stuff like that gets thrown around. And I maybe he's a great guy and and. You know, players seem to like him, but like when it comes to a, a, a player having a relationship with an organization, Kyrie's the worst. Uh, what What are your thoughts? Yeah, Ky- Kyrie has kind of been this guy for pretty much his whole career. Uh, you can't discount the fact that he was a huge part in the Cavs winning the championship in in two thousand, uh, I think sixteen, I believe it was. Right. I know that that shot he hit in game seven is going to live on forever, but all that aside, I think he has proven that his ego is, is larger than uh, his commitment to basketball. So look, he's our, he, he went to Boston and that didn't work out. I'm fine. Everyone gave him a pass for that, which everyone gets a pass, uh, you know, one of them at least uh, sometimes it's just a bad situation. Then he goes to Brooklyn and he's just never there. Uh, either he's hurt or he chooses to sit out for what if you, whether you agree with his decision or not. Uh, the, the fact is he was not committed to the Nets as a not fully committed to the Nets like you would expect from someone that you're paying 30, 40 million dollars a year. And the Nets became one of the biggest uh, untold stories in NBA history because they accumulated so much of this talent and it never saw the floor uh, at the same time. And Kyrie was a large part of that. So it was no surprise to anybody when Kyrie came to the Nets asking uh, for another four-year max deal after they had just blown three or four years on him already with paying him a ton of money for very little payoff, certainly no playoff uh, payoff. They, they, they had no, uh, absolutely no intention of bringing him back, or at least not to a long-term deal. and instead of just playing out the season and proving himself in the playoffs, you know, God forbid he and Durant got the Nets to the finals. They would, of course, they would have brought him back. They would have had to, but instead 
you know, he basically quit on the team and told them to raid me. And yeah, everything you said, he is, I don't want to say he's the worst because, you know, personality wise, his fellow players seem to like him. He was certainly one of the top 10 NBA players of this season uh, performance wise, but as far as Dallas goes, look, they've tried and failed uh, multiple times building a team around Luka Doncic, who, if he's not the NBA's best player, he's one of the three best players right now. Uh, he is an absolute top shelf Hall of Fame superstar. And also, we have the same birthday. Anyway, uh, <laughs> right. they, um, yeah, they, they just can't seem to figure it out. So, I, I saw a picture on Twitter today of Carmelo Anthony and Allen Iverson. And I, I don't want to say there's a parallel because Iverson was obviously much older and at the end of his career, but it kind of feels that way to me where you have two guys that are ball dominant that score a crap ton of points, dish out assists. Uh, they both need the ball. And you could say, hey, Kyrie played with LeBron seven, six, seven years ago. I mean, how is this any different than that? Well, Kyrie isn't the same guy he was six, seven. I, he's certainly more ball dominant. He's... Uh, much more efficient, uh, I would say, shooter. I, look, maybe it works out. I'll, I'm like the rest of America. I will be very interested to see what happens. Uh, am I expecting it to work out? No, I'm expecting Kyrie to play the rest of the season and you know go to the Lakers or somewhere else that suits his ego better than Dallas, Texas. Uh, but that's just the cynic in me. Yeah, and I've I've been a. I've been a proponent of the player empowerment era and I, and I think that like, you know, Hey, look, players should have that power. And, and if, and if they want to play somewhere, they should, but this is where it, it, this is where it becomes problematic. You know, I, I'm not saying that you have to play anywhere for your entire career or, or whatever. If you want to go play somewhere, you want to go try to win a championship, do that. But um, where, where you're a guy where you get to a point where guys don't want to play anywhere where they want to leave every every year it's like i just don't know i it's it's really hard to do business with a player like that and um yeah i i just i i don't know i don't think it's going to work out either because like you said he's ball dominant and i know that he's said in the press uh that he is going to um you know, I I guess he didn't he didn't quite say it verbatim, but he, he somewhat acknowledges that it's Lucas team and that he's you know he's excited to be there and all that. But yeah, I just don't know how this is going to work out. I, like you said, I I expect it to not work out. Uh, maybe they get to the playoffs, but um, they're going to get bounced early. But I, I, the other point of, part of this is, you know, this Brooklyn team that <laughs> was supposed to be. Um, the greatest team of all time, what they played 17 games together, uh, Durant, I, uh, uh, Kyrie and, 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 um, James Harden, 17 games together. That's, that's all they were able to muster. Now, now you have to wonder if Kevin Durant's going to move. Now, Brooklyn did come out and say today that they have no intentions of moving him, but how many times have you heard in the past that a team said they had no intentions of moving somebody and then they went and moved them? Go ahead. I Here's why I believe them, because the Houston Rockets essentially own the entirety of Brooklyn's own draft stock, not this season, but every season after this season for the rest of the decade. Yeah. So if you're Brooklyn, blowing it up does nothing for you, absolutely nothing, because every bad season you have, the Rockets can just pluck your draft pick from you 
whether they own it outright or they can just swap picks with themselves. So they have no reason, no motivation, even if they think this is a lost cause. Um, you can either have Kevin Durant or not have him and be bad and get nothing for it. I mean, what what would you do? They, they have no choice. They have to keep trying to build around him. I I guess um, I'm reminded of a story that a friend once told me about when he was walking home late at night and was uh, confronted by a bunch of, uh, I don't know, people who wanted to fight. And he had to fight a bunch of people all by himself, uh, like four people by himself. Uh, he he put a guy into a headlock and then he said, uh, you know, everybody started punching him and all he could do was absorb the blows. And I think that's what the Nets need to do is absorb the blows. And I think that you you take Durant and you see who can get who who you could trade him to that has an unprotected first round pick. And and you make that move. You 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 rebuild. It's like this isn't going to work there. He's not going to want to be through stay through this he he didn't want to stay you know this off season there was a chance that he didn't want to stay and he almost went to phoenix i i i think that i mean i get i get what you're saying it would it would be much harder for them to rebuild but at the same time it's it's it, you really you're 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 being held hostage by the situation i i agree but kevin durant is under contract for the next three seasons after this he can't and he, to his credit, he's never been a guy that's been like Kyrie Irving where he's held out. The only games times he's missed games is because he's been injured. Right. Uh, he's asked to be traded. Shoot, he has to be traded over the offseason. But in no in no way has he sat out any games because he was unhappy. Uh, I, look, I get it that they'd be better off, you know, trying to rebuild. But the only – the, the – main part of the process in rebuilding is owning your own draft picks and they don't. So if they trade him, it better be for every single piece that they can get in a rebuild because they can't help themselves in the draft. I mean, it, it can't be one unprotected pick. It needs to be three, four, five unprotected to make it worth their while, in my opinion, unless they can get two or three top shelf young players uh, in return. And I'm not sure what team is even in position to offer them that. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. Uh, my gosh, I don't know if you could hear my dog drinking water, but it's the loudest thing in the entire world all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and you know, there's the Pistons who uh, maybe they're going to make a move. I would prefer that they didn't. I, I think that they should just go ahead and stay put. Um, what you know, Thursday's the deadline when. Uh, when the deadline passes, do you think the Pistons have made a move? And 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 if is it to somebody like Bogdanovich or or Burks or is it is it a lower deal? I do not think that they are interested in pushing in kicking the can down the road and trading more talent that's good now for you know draft picks three four years from now unless they have a separate deal where they can flip it for a player that can help them now like they did with when they had Jeremy Grant traded him for a distant first and they took that distant first and flipped it for Jalen Duran. I mean, if they have a deal like that in mind, then yeah. But, but I don't think they're going to just blanket trade for future picks without having a plan. Uh, look, at, at the deadline, and I don't think the Pistons are in a great position to make any huge major moves, but that's kind of my problem with Troy Weaver. 
like the first year he got Hami Diallo for nothing and that every we all cheered that because he's a hell of an athlete and an interesting talent and he's still here whereas the guy they traded for him I, he's still in the league but barely um last year they got uh Marvin Bagley and for again they they traded I think Trey Lyles for him like uh, Troy Weaver's been shopping out of the bargain bin and he's gotten good bargains, but that doesn't defeat the fa- uh, purpose of the fact that he's been shopping out of the bargain bin. He's not risking anything. He's just, he's trading spare parts for reclamation projects. And that's kind of getting old uh, to me. Uh, I, I would at least like him make an attempt to go out and get somebody uh, that is productive now that other teams value uh now, I'm not saying that he should overpay or give up the farm, but take a risk. I, I, he hasn't taken a risk yet. I would like to see him take a risk uh, and, and go out and get somebody that he he really values. That that would at least show me that he, there's something else to his skill set other than finding guys in the draft and finding guys at the you know end of another team's bench that maybe could use a fresh start. Oh, 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 teacher. I have my hand raised. I I have I have a risk. I have a risk. Bradley Beal. I mean, Wa- Washington's got to get out of that. I mean, I I it's not it's not totally similar to Kevin Durant, but like it's not happening. Washington is the same team as they were five years ago. They're just that's who you know. They're just never gonna they're just never gonna get any farther until they get out of that Bradley Beal contract. I and and Bradley Beal is is I mean pair him with look I like Jaden Ivey I do, um, but is is Jaden Ivey going to turn into the player we all want him to be or is is he going to be I mean I don't know you know uh, it's a risk it's a real risk but you take in a guy yeah. that's that is an all star and who's going to guarantee you know I'm not look I and and before. Before everybody turns this podcast off and throws their phone at the wall, uh, I, look, I'm just you know I'm just shooting shooting the the shit here, man. I'm not saying that this is what the Pistons should do or I think the Pistons should do it, but like this is if you're gonna take a risk, if you want to shoot, you know your shot big time. You know I know there's 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 reason to think that eventually maybe they'll shoot that shot with Devin Booker, but what if it's Bradley Beal right now? So Bradley Beal to me represents Blake Griffin. Um, he's he's a better player than Blake Griffin was at his best a little bit. I think they're similar. But the fact of the matter is he hasn't played a full season in four years. Uh, he used to be a 30-point-a-game guy. Now he's barely a 20-point-a-game guy, which probably has a lot to do with his injuries, which is fair to ask if he's going to recover from that. And and for a guy that's going to make, what, 40 to $50 million, uh, every year, through 2027 he's going to get 57 million dollars in 2027 uh at which point he will be 34 years old i i'm just that like his contract almost perfectly mirrors the blake griffin contract in his career right now almost perfectly mirrors blake griffin's career like when i say take a risk i mean risk giving up value for someone else's value not necessarily a guy like i think beal to me is is too great a risk because he's too old, in my opinion, uh, for the mileage that he has. He's going to turn 30 during the summer for an undersized two-guard. Uh, I, I think if you're looking to win a championship, I think he's a, he's a 
uh, a fair risk to take. If you're a team like the Pistons that's trying to rise up from the ashes, I don't know if you trade, you know, any number of your prospects, those young players you spent years and years losing to get to get Bradley Beal. Not, not to mention, I think Washington's kind of, you're right, they need to let go of him, and I don't think they will because I think they're just stuck on um, trying to build a team around him because he's been so good there. I don't know. I think they kind of fear if they give up Bradley Beal, they're not going to see a play that good again for a while. I, yeah, that's fair. But the, the, the flip side of that to me is because I'm hearing the word cam, uh, the words Cam Reddish thrown around a lot today. No. Which would – well, look, they would give up nothing for him. I guarantee you they wouldn't give up a first. They wouldn't give up anybody value. I think the best value that they would have to give up would be Hami Diallo, who's an impending free agent. And if right. they decide they don't want – if they decide they don't want to re-sign him in the summer anyway, then fine. But that that's more bargain than shopping like they've been doing for years, which is fun. It's great for us to talk about. It just doesn't move the needle a hell of a lot. Cam Reddish is a talented player. He's been at two stops. Both stops wanted nothing to do with him. And I think that speaks loudly uh, about his, if not his talent level, his commitment to being an NBA player. Yeah, I'm not totally against it as long as you're not, um, as long as the Knicks aren't asking for something like Isaiah Livers or something like that. But I suppose that the Pistons, the ball is in their court on a move like that. So, um, yeah. Balls in their court, no matter what. If if they don't, don't, if they don't want to move Livers anybody, makes, they don't have. To. I don't think Livers makes enough money anyway. I think it would have to be because I, I Cam Reddish was a top ten draft pick, and he's okay. in the last year, so I, I'm sure they'd have to offer a little bit more salary. Yeah, I'm interested in the player that people think Cam Reddish can be, but not yes. interested in the player that Cam Reddish is. Uh, but anyways. Let's get to today's topic. Uh, we're going to talk Bison Daily. Brian Williams, uh, original name Brian Williams. He did change his name to Bison Daily due to his uh, Native American heritage. Uh, he didn't do that until his final season in the league. But so most of the his his career he was he was Brian Williams. So let's uh, let's go all the way back to Maryland, Keith. Yeah. Uh... Bison Daly, very much a uh, nomadic character, uh, comes into Maryland, uh, 12, 12 and a half points, six rebounds as a freshman, uh, playing in the ACC, does very well, and then transfers out to Arizona. Uh, maybe more his kind of, I'm not sure why he transferred out. It certainly wasn't because he wasn't playing well or he wasn't getting playing time. Uh, goes to Arizona after sitting out a year uh, because of the transfer. Uh, plays well in Arizona. Uh, his first year there averages 11 and 6. It's a modest, uh, modest average, but he plays, I mean, college basketball, that's still pretty good, especially in the Pac-10. Uh, does not score at all. <laughs> 14 minutes, does not score a point in the second round of the tournament that year against Alabama, which kind of, it's the up and down nature, and we will get into this a lot as this podcast goes along, but Bison Daley uh one day he could be great and the next day he would be the worst player on the floor that's just the way that he would operate and there it almost didn't matter who the opponent was uh and this kind of leads me to his senior year uh up to his average to about 14.8 rebounds 
led the led the, the entire conference in in field goal percentage. Uh, shot over sixty per sixty two percent, and that was kind of his skill set. Uh, I'm I'm gonna get into Bison Daly's um skill set right now. Uh, Bison went about I I don't care what his B ref page says he was he was at least 6'10", 240, 250. Uh, he was a legit NBA sized big man for even in his, during his college days. Uh, very powerful guy, very mobile guy. Uh, great footwork. Uh, he was just blessed with a basketball body. Uh, amazing hands. Uh, could catch the ball anywhere in the block. Uh, excellent. He was left handed, and you know all of his moves were left-handed, but he could go to the right on occasion. He very rarely took a bad shot, uh, but that's weird to say because a lot of his bad shots still went in. He was that good around the rim. Uh, had range probably at about 16, 17 feet. And on top of that, he had a face-up game. Uh, if he caught the ball out of the perimeter and you played up on him, he could take most big men off the dribble and finish at the rim. Uh, really the total package when it comes to offense uh, on, on defense, it really had to do with his temperament. Was he, does he deciding to play today or not? Uh, but on his best days, I would say he would be a little bit better than average defender. He could block shots. He could uh, play passing lanes. It just wasn't in him to show up every night. So, you know, I, I, as a whole, I think he was a very unreliable defender. Uh, but Going back into his uh, his final year at Arizona, uh, he led Arizona to a great season. They went twenty eight and seven. They were a two seed in the tournament. Scores all of four points against little fifteen seeded Saint Francis uh, in the first round, and then follows that up by averaging twenty three and ten against BYU and Seton Hall in the next two rounds. Uh, they lost to Seton Hall, but the, the point is, it really didn't matter who he was playing against. Uh, he could either be great or he could be pretty terrible, and that he showed it in the tournament uh, in that in that final season. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, and and that's a theme that's just going to continue through through on uh, the you know you had mentioned it earlier, but it's just inconsistencies. But but obviously teams uh, saw through that, and Orlando is one of those teams. They uh, they wind up taking him tenth overall in the NBA draft. And, uh, yeah, you know, Orlando's a, a relatively new team. They've only been around for, what, a few years at this point. Um, this is one of their first first-round picks. So the the thought process here is that he's going to be, you know, their starter, and he's going to be the next big or the first big thing because they really don't even have a big thing in Orlando yet. Uh, and it doesn't really work out that way. And he winds up seeing limited time on the court. And, um, yeah, what what happened in Orlando? Yeah, so Orlando was the first NBA team to be uh, lured in by Bison Daly's talent and all the things he could do on the floor, but they wouldn't be the last, to be fair. Uh, not only did they draft him with a top 10 pick, uh, they gave him four years, just under $5 million right off the bat, which was a lot. He was in 1991. I mean, it's a lot today, but I mean, in the NBA, it was a lot in 1991. Uh, so they gave him all this money. He was, I think, the second or third, maybe, I think he was the second highest paid player on the team his rookie year. Uh, but what I think speaks volumes is that he only started two games. I mean, he, he played 46. He only started two. Uh, Greg Kite and Stanley Roberts were were splitting 
the starting job uh, at center for the Magic that season. So it's not like he had great competition. He's he's undoubtedly more talented player uh, than either of those guys. But the fact that the coach, I think it was Matt Gukas at the time, uh, chose to never start him, uh, <laughs> spoke volumes. Uh, and I broke down his rookie season uh, because – yeah, I, I think that this really speaks to his career. Uh, he played 11 games where he scored at least 16 points uh, that year as a rookie. Uh, his averages were 19, just over 19 points, a little over eight rebounds. Shot 68% from the floor. 68%. It's uh, really good. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's uh, and, and, very and I, I checked all the games where he played at least 13 minutes and did and failed to score double digits. And in those games, that's just 17 of them. 17 times where he played at least 13 minutes, where that's rotation minutes, and failed to hit 10 points. And in those games, he, he averaged 5.1 points and shot 37.5% from the floor. Uh, the, the, the same guy in the same season – and look, you can chalk this up to a lot of ups and downs that that a lot of rookies go through. Uh, but in, in Bison Daly's case, I don't think this was part of being a rookie. I think this is just a part of who he was. And this is about the time when, and I'm not going to get into his personal life um, a great deal, but I think it it's relevant to what went on during on the floor during his career, uh, where he started to seek help uh, for you know, mental struggles that he was having. Right. And I I know there was, he was struggling with depression and I'm not, I don't think he ever disclosed what he was diagnosed with, uh, but he was definitely battling demons, which anyone that had ever played with him would tell you for, I'm not breaking news here. Uh, but I look, I don't think he ever really loved the game of basketball. I think he loved the money that he made from playing basketball. It was a career to him and there's nothing wrong with that a lot of very good players have had very good NBA careers without really loving the sport of basketball. But for him, it was almost a necessity. It, it was a, yeah. And we'll get into this when my personal experience is watching him with the Pistons, but yeah, sometimes he was really fighting himself to get on the court at times and, and play well. And sometimes it was the easiest thing in the world because he loved being there. It just, and it was almost always random. Yeah. And not to, I guess not to dwell too much on this point, but it, I would almost say that, and maybe this is uh, reaching, but I would say that a player like Bison with uh, some of these mental struggles, uh, he would just, he would just be so much better off if he were playing today, <laughs> because I think there'd be a lot more understanding. And I think that he, there's a lot the the mental health world has come a lot farther even there's a lot farther that it can go and, and should go but it's come a lot farther in, in today's world and i think that maybe he he would just be better off today i think he would be treated better today i don't because it's mental health struggles it's not like something you can always just take a pill and it's better right it's something that you're constantly dealing with and i don't know if his nba career would have turned out better i think maybe his personal life would have turned out better uh you would have more people understanding of the the struggles he was going through because he'd be able to be more open about it. But would he have be a, have been a better basketball player? I I don't know if I'm secure enough to say that it would be it would go on any differently. Sure. All right. Uh. So well, after uh, you know, 
well, Shaq arrives in, yeah, in, next yeah, year. <laughs> you know, in 19, yeah, 1992. And that's, you know, that really, that spells the end. I mean, he, he, Brian Williams or Bison Daly rather becomes extremely expendable at that moment because well, he, he's not going to be that, He becomes a liability because I, we just went over how much money he was making from his, right. his, yeah, his rookie deal, which again, we didn't have rookie scale contracts in the early 90s. You could, get whatever you could negotiate for. So all of a sudden his contract becomes a major problem because they don't, I remember on draft day, they don't even know if they can sign Shaquille O'Neal to his demands because they're, because they're already paying uh, Bison Daly this much uh, on his rookie deal. Like they had to do some cap maneuvering just to sign their number one pick. <laughs> so it, it's not so much that he was expendable as that he was a liability. Um, I think they would have loved to have him, back up Shaquille O'Neal, but he was making more money than half the starters. So they they had to, it was pretty much, they had to just get rid of his salary to give themselves room to maneuver again, which they did mid season. Um, they traded him to the Denver Nuggets for what Anthony Cook, Todd Lichty and a second round pick, which wow. is just about as, that's basically a, Please take them off our hands. We'll take whatever you, you're going to offer us. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, now that he is in Denver, though, uh, this is where you really start to see him break out. And he's backing up to Kembe Mutombo, arguably, you know, a top, uh, wow, well, 10 center of all time, maybe top 10. Would you say 10? I maybe top 20, 25. Okay. I, I, well, maybe top 15. I would, I, I, I could, see him being in my inside my top 20 i don't know if i could see him in my top 10 okay but he, well, look, dude, one of the greatest defenders of all yes time, I, 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 I sound like i'm putting him down when i say that <laughs> yeah. he was you know three time or four time defensive player of the year um yeah you, you earth i think three time defense whatever or five, was it five times i don't even remember just he, he made it the defensive player of the, uh, of the year award a lot uh everyone that was around in the 90s remembers him waking the finger uh, dominant player, uh, and we were going to discuss, you know, the highlight of his career as long as, as well as Bison's. So yeah, uh, he's coming off the bench, obviously, because you're just yeah. not, you're just not going to get over get over to Kimbe Matumbo. But this is where, as as you uh, had mentioned off air, this is really where everybody starts to take a lot of notice to him because he is going to play a major role in uh, the arguably the greatest playoff upset of all time in maybe even any sport. Yeah. Remember I just said that the Orlando magic probably wouldn't have minded having Bison daily back up Shaq. It's just that the money didn't work out. Well, Dikemi Matumbo wasn't making nearly what Shaq was. So they could afford to have him backing up uh, Dikemi Matumbo and they had the youngest team in the league. So not a lot of the guys on that team were making big money yet. And you know, Denver has a modest, you know, 500 season, I think a little bit under 500. It doesn't look like they're really going anywhere. And in the first round of the playoffs, uh, everyone remembers this because it's one of the great moments in NBA history. Uh, they played Seattle, who had the NBA's best record uh, that season. They were the number one seed in the all of the playoffs. And in the first game, and this is kind of a reflection of Bison Daly once again, the, the first game, he takes six shots, makes all six, scores 15, they lose. Uh, and then in the next, let's see, 
he scores 12 total points in games two, three, and four combined. Just a total non-factor. But the Nuggets win two of those, and, and they force the decisive game five because it was only a best of five back then in Seattle. And in that game five, uh, they rolled the dice and they got like the best possible version of Bison Dele. Uh, and when I say the best pot, he had everything going. Uh, the, the Seattle Supersonics had, had no answer for him in the post, in the paint. He wrecked havoc. Uh, and everyone remembers the greatest upset, in my opinion, in, in playoff history, which is the Nuggets upsetting, becoming the first eight seed to win, a, to beat a one seed in the first round and Matumbo holding the ball. But the, the fact is, um, uh, Bison Daly played 34 minutes in that game, had 17 points and 19 rebounds. He was an absolute monster and without him they don't even come close to winning that game uh to that was by far the most impactful performance he ever had in his career and really it, it kind of bled into it's not like it that led to bit bigger and better things for him because he was still the same inconsistent guy uh seattle just ran into him on the wrong night right uh, in, in the second round against the jazz uh he had uh, I, I think game five, he had he played 41 minutes, had 19 points, 11 rebounds. Uh, the game seven, uh, he had 13 points, 10 rebounds. And in the other five games of that series, he averaged seven and six. It was <laughs> the, the Utah Jazz. It, I mean, really, you could say the difference between the Jazz beating the Nuggets, uh, and the Sonics losing to the Nuggets in the playoffs was the, the Sonics ran into Bison Daly on the wrong night. It's, yeah. it's that yeah in nba history is made because of that and you know it's sad to say but i mean you know and, and this probably won't be the last time we say it on here but like just it, what could have been I mean, this guy yeah. was on all the time i mean he could have been uh you know one of the best in the game at that time uh if i mean that's the potential that that we're looking at here is that a guy if he if he just can stay on he he could be an all-star caliber player. Um well he's gonna he's gonna uh you know Denver Denver's gonna hold on to him for two years, but then he is going to oh what 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 well I, I don't mean to interrupt, but they, they held on to him for one more year. And just like the because everyone expected the Nuggets, because they were the youngest team in the league and they had pulled off the they had made this magical playoff run. Everyone expected them to take the next step in, in 1996 and, you know, become a, one of the top teams in the West. And they never did. They actually finished about the same as they did the year before, you know, a 500 team. And instead of getting a first round upset, they actually got swept uh, by the Spurs in the first round. And Bison Daly kind of mirrored that because people expected him wrongly to take a another step and he didn't. And he was coming up on the last year of his contract and the, the Nuggets said, you know, they had enough. They, they traded him to the Clippers for Felton Spencer. Uh, oh, just wow. Felton Spencer. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, I think, wait, was it Felton Spencer or Elmore Spencer? It might have been Elmore Spencer. Either way, probably the only time either of those two guys will get mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> it was Elmore Spencer, my mistake. Okay. Definitely the only time Elmore Spencer would get mentioned yep. on this podcast. But but that's just another in another team where Bison Daly clearly produced. He showed he could play. It's just 
you know, they they couldn't deal with his inconsistencies and it and in the end his inconsistencies kind of you know brought down the whole team so now he goes to the clippers where he's incapable of bringing them down because they're already down you can't tear apart something that's already broken right well he is going to have you know one of his best statistical jeez i sound like jim carrey and uh yeah. Fun with Dick and Jane. He's gonna have one of his, his best statistical seasons uh with the Clippers. He's gonna start 65 games. This is this is gonna be really the first time in his career that he's a full-fledged starter. And he's gonna average 15.8 points a game and 7.6 rebounds. And uh and he's gonna for all accounts look like you know the player that everyone thinks he's capable of being and that he's shown he's capable of being when he's on. Uh, but obviously the Clippers are just a really bad team. And, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, um, Zach Levine always comes up. I don't know where it's like, he just has this unbelievable statistical performance. Uh, Sharif Abdul-Rahim was like this too, but it's like empty. It's like empty carbs. It's like, it's like empty bad, you know, empty stats. It doesn't really mean anything because the team's so bad. And, um, and yeah, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on his time with the Clippers? Yeah, this is very much the definition of a uh, great stats on bad teams performance where he he started every single game that he played for the Clippers, uh, play average 33 minutes. So, of course, he put up more points. Of course, he grabbed more rebounds and his efficiency didn't drop off all that much, which his efficiency never dropped off. He was a very high percentage scorer basically every stop of his career. Uh, but NBA teams have uh, other NBA teams have scouts too, as I like to say, and they saw how his time ended in Orlando and how it ended in Denver. So, you know, primarily, and this goes with any NBA player when they, when they're listless for the first three years of their contract and they suddenly turn it on and play well in year four, there's not a whole lot of people that want to buy into that. And we just discussed this with Guy Irving where you can't mail it in for most of your contract, suddenly turn it on in year four or the final year contract season, and then get everyone to buy in that you're going to give them another, you know, four years to do it. It's not going to happen. And I'm not sure exactly what Daly was asking for in free agency. I, I know it couldn't have been superstar money because even he didn't believe that he was worth that much. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that he hit, free agency during the summer of uh, 96, you know, the first major free agency spending bonanza in NBA history where a lot of teams had money and there were a lot of great names out there. And, uh, you know, the game of musical chairs ended in Bison Daly was the only one without a seat. Uh, No one, I don't even know if anyone bid on him. Uh, It was no one wanted to pay him the money he wanted or the contract length that he wanted. And he basically, instead of signing a, a lesser deal, uh, sat out the season. Uh, it was, it was, they didn't, he, he, he wasn't getting any offers that he wanted and they didn't like the offer, the asking price that he had. So, and, and look like we just went over Bison Daly had no love for the game of bass. He didn't need to be playing at all times. So I think he was happy to take the vacation. Yeah. It's it still seems weird because it's like, you know, this is this is a story that it still happens today where a player will kind of overvalue themselves, but they still always wind up 
yeah some, somewhere you know somebody yeah, just, they just go to somewhere. stay yeah just to stay involved and right. and it's and it was, just yeah, doesn't happen he was here. happy it seemed like he was content just not playing until somebody offered him some money which in the end you could say that the gamble paid off for him right well somebody does come along and offer him money and it's the chicago bulls well, who are they offered him a job they didn't they offer him, him a job yeah they well, that job did come with some money, uh, but well, not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and but, he only he only plays nine regular season games for the Bulls. Well, That's crazy. Well, you have to understand there are only ten games left in the season when they signed him. Yeah, he he's the Bulls picked him up April second. Oh my gosh! There were it was only two weeks before the playoffs, uh, basically, and it was a minimum deal. Uh, but he took it as he should have because it was a chance for him to show his value for the following season, keep himself in, in NBA circles. He's an so, insur- yeah, he insurance very, player, essentially. Yeah, he played very poorly. Well, the Bulls badly needed him, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, they were they were kind of banged up. They weren't as deep as they used to be uh, the year before, even though they were clearly the NBA's best team. They, they needed bench scoring. They needed an interior post player. He fit all of their needs. Who was backing uh, up Luke he, Longley before he got there? Do you do you remember? What I'm sorry. Who was backing up Luke Longley before uh, Williams showed up? Uh, Robert Parrish. I believe. Oh, geez, the very old Robert Parrish. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that was his last season. Um, but yeah. It, so the problem is he had to play himself into shape. So yeah, he was terrible the last two weeks of the regular season. He wasn't very good in the playoffs either, but once they got to the finals, uh, that's when you saw the value because, and I think Pippen was quoted as saying they wouldn't have beaten the Jazz without without Bison Dele. Uh, he was that important to them. Uh, first three rounds of the playoffs, average six points, 16 minutes, uh, really not impact player. In the finals uh, against the, the Jazz with Carl Malone, Antoine Carr, you know, big front line, Jeff Foster, uh, very good defensive team. Uh, all of a sudden, his minutes, he goes up, he's playing 20 minutes a game, averages a modest seven points, three rebounds in the finals, but that that was good enough to be the fourth leading scorer in the Bulls in the finals. Yeah. Uh, the Bulls were that kind of decimated by how banged up they were. Again, it was a different time. The, the games were, were very low scoring in 1997. But, you know, the fact is he was one of the Bulls' best players. After Jordan and Pippen and Coach, he was probably the best player in the team in the finals uh, because he had played himself into shape. He was fresher than everybody else. And he was getting them buckets uh, in the fourth quarter when they needed to get buckets. And that was the bottom line. He very much deserved that ring from that brief championship appearance. That's... um yeah, gosh, the NBA was so weird back then, wasn't it? Because, uh, he, you know, in 1996, he goes to the Clippers, as we mentioned. He scored, you know, 15 points a game, 7.6 rebounds. You would think that that would be the year that would get him arguably his biggest, not arguably, his biggest contract. Uh, but yeah. instead, it's the year that he shows up in April has to play himself into shape and only averages like seven points a game in the NBA Finals. That gets him a big uh, five-year, $36 million deal. Um, well, seven for 45. Seven for 45. Okay, seven for 45. 
Oh, it's a, oh the remaining five. Yeah, years. Okay. Sorry, my bad. Uh, yeah, seven seven year deal for forty five million. I read that wrong. My apologies to everybody. Uh, with the Detroit Pistons, it's just a, it's just I don't know. It's weird. Um, so was there a bidding war for for uh, for Daly yeah, at this yes time? And no, um, it, it was obvious that that Daly's price was going to go up a little bit. Well, not his price, but his 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 value around the league was going to go up a little bit because pretty much anyone that plays a, a notable role in an NBA final series, they're going to get eyes on them. I, I here's the thing: um, he took advantage of a very desperate uh, coach slash general manager in Doug Collins, who why his, his Pistons team was falling down around him. Uh, all of his, a lot of his players wanted out. Uh, Otis Thorpe basically forced him to trade him to Vancouver just to get rid of him because it was a toxic situation at that point. And he, Doug Collins had some cap space and he desperately needed to replace Otis Thorpe. He needed a, a starting center. And really the only way that he could get Bison Dele to come to Detroit was to over overpay. And I promise you that no one else was offered. They, look, I'm sure he he would have gotten offers, maybe the same kind of money for two or three years, maybe less money for four or five. Uh, Doug Collins offers him seven years, $45 million, just an insane amount of money for a guy whose number one red flag is he doesn't show up to play every night. And it really wound up being Doug Collins. And look, I, I called Doug Collins a GM, which he was. Rick Sund was the one making the phone calls, but Doug Collins had final roster approval. He was the one signing off on everything. So I am putting this squarely on Doug Collins. Can, and, we, can we just do a, a slight pop out there on when has the coach uh, GM czar thing ever worked and why do teams keep thinking it's going to work? It's the weirdest. Like, I just don't understand why teams keep doing it. I, so it, it is very weird. I, even when Greg Popovich, who was the G, Spurs GM originally, uh, stepped down to take, he named himself head coach, but he relinquished GM duties to R.C. Buford. Uh, so I don't know. That's a good uh, Pat Riley, maybe? Pat Riley is the only time I can ever see that working because Pat I, Riley was his own boss. Yeah, uh, I suppose and, so, yeah. Yeah, and he led, he did take over that he coached them to a championship and in 2006 himself so but he did he did step he did step down to or well he's like he oh he's yeah i mean but but it was for a team that had Shaq and Dwayne Wade like it wasn't like a rebuild or anything like that i I get it but yeah that's like saying phil jackson had Shaq and kobe and mike like you you need great players to win championships right 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 but that's the only time i can think of it working but that's just off the top of my head but I yes, guess it's Bill Belichick for the Pistons, in the NFL. For the Pistons, the it is a horror story they should stay away from forever because they've tried it twice and it has blown up in their faces twice. Yeah, please don't do it again. Uh, well, you know, he's going to have his best statistical season yeah, of his, of his career. Great. Yeah, uh, 16 points, 8.9 rebounds a game. Uh, look like a guy like it. I remember, you know, thinking like, here we go. You know, this is this is what we've been waiting for. Uh, like, a guy who is going to be right there with Grant Hill and, and is going to help this team uh, get things going, you know, and this is right around the time where like Stackhouse is also starting to come into his own a little bit. Joe Dumars well, hasn't quite retired yet. Um, they, they, 
they traded for Stackhouse a couple months into the season. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed like, you know, I know 1998 wasn't the greatest season in the world, but it seemed like things were going to be better going forward. And when you when you look at it through through the eyes of that that time, um, you had just missed out on Dikembe Mutombo, uh, and it sucks. But maybe this guy's going to be good enough to make that that uh, hurt not hurt so much. At least that's yeah. how I felt at the time. Yeah, I remember being more excited than I probably should have at the time because he was a, a one of the bigger names on the market and he fit a position that they had just uh, opened up. And at the same time, once you see what once and this is where my experience comes in of watching him play as a as a Pistons fan for two years. Once you see him play, uh, yeah. He, there are some nights where he would just be awesome, where he would dominate his matchup, uh, even against a perennial all-star like a Patrick Ewing or a Dikembe Mutombo. And then there'd be another night where they go up against the Dallas Mavericks and he can't score against Sean Rooks or somebody. And he commits four fouls and plays 15 minutes and scores two points. And you never know which version of him you were going to get uh, on which night. Uh, to his credit, I think that 98 season was probably the most consistent. Maybe he felt more pressure to to play harder every night because of that contract. I don't know. Uh, but I think that was probably his more most consistent season, which still wasn't saying much. Uh, but here was the problem. Uh, his contract caused a lot of resentment in the locker room, especially among players who had accomplished way more than he had and was were making a lot less than he was. And you can go on down the line he was getting paid more than any piston except grant hill so <laughs> take grant hill out of the equation and look at the other guys that were getting minutes on that team and scoring points and you can see where the resentment was coming from uh and that hurt team chemistry a lot yeah. and then the other thing was um uh his role on the team where he was a good post-up threat most of the time when he was going, but the problem was there would be nights when he just didn't have it and he would just be a, a, a big guy with a pot belly um, clogging up the lane. And what happened was that that Pistons offense that was one of the top offenses in the league the year before suddenly sank to just a slightly above average. And that was enough to knock them out of the playoffs entirely because the East was so good at the time. So even though Bison put up numbers, I think they were worse for having him on the floor a lot of nights because he clogged it, everything up and he wasn't good enough like a Patrick Ewing or a David Robinson to to make that worthwhile. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you mentioned the the chemistry issues and then, you know, there's the problems with the locker room and all that. And, and a lot of that's going to show through in 1999, his final year in the NBA it's going to play 49 games. Um, Which is mostly a whole season. And then, you know, you're going to, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it is a lockout shortened season. Yeah, good point. <laughs> or no, is that the next year? No, no, it is. It's the lockout season. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the lockout shortened season. But yes, things, this is where, like, this is where things are going to really go downhill. Um, and Keith, I'll let you take this. All right, so this is the 
everyone remembers the lockout that basically it, it almost ended the entire season. Uh, they started uh, the season actually this time in uh, around 1999, early February, first week of February is when they were finally able to start the season, this 50 game season. And of course, uh, Bison Dele, not exactly a workout warrior. He comes into camp kind of out of shape, uh, doesn't play very well to start the season. Uh, he also, this is, by the way, when he became officially, uh, officially became Bison Daly was during this lockout period. So he was on the court. He was officially by, by, uh, named Bison Daly at this time. But I actually kind of remember him, believe it or not, I kind of remember him fondly for this season because he actually, his minutes went way down. He was playing almost 10 minutes per game less. Uh, his efficiency quite wasn't quite what it was, but I think a lot of that's tainted by his early season numbers and how he struggled, I think, to get in shape because towards the end of the season, he was actually playing pretty well. And in the playoffs, they ran into the, the, the Pistons were a good team this year, the, the, this year, uh, I think the fifth seed in the East, uh, they met Atlanta in the playoffs again, uh, who had tortured them the couple of years prior. Uh, he actually, and this is a perfect, uh, encapsulation of Bison Daly's career was this last series uh scores a grand total of seven points the first two games uh three for ten shooting that's it total in I think so like 40 some minutes in the first two games just completely invisible uh averages all of a sudden games three and four come around and the Pistons are down 0-2 at this point the series goes back to the Palace for games three and four uh, averages 15 and eight again in, in short minutes because he's in foul trouble but he averaged 15 and eight shot 65 percent against Dikembe freaking Matumbo uh, Pistons blow out Atlanta both of those games and they go back to and it, they don't even go back to Atlanta well they go back to Atlanta but it's a different arena I think they had to play the game five in Georgia Tech for some reason uh, but in the Georgia which the Georgia Dome I think that that's when they where they played it anyway uh Shoots, they lose game five because basically everybody on the team doesn't even show up aside from Grant Hill. But the one guy that did show up was Bison Dele. Uh, eight for 10 from the floor, 17.7 rebounds in what would turn out to be his final NBA game. That, that does kind of put a smile on my face that he was that good. He His career did not end on a sour note. It actually ended on a very positive one. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, yeah, as you mentioned, his career is going to end. He's going to, uh, I guess, shock everybody when he retires. Yeah. I and mean, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, he had five remaining years on his contract and a whole lot of money left on the table, uh, but decides that he wants to walk away from the game. And I think, you know, that obviously this goes back to, like, I don't think he just ever really wanted to play basketball. I, I And yeah. I, I think that, you know, he's a big guy and, and this was a way to uh, to make money. This was a way to this was a means to an end more than uh, the love of the game. And uh, and yeah, he's gonna retire. And um, I remember just being uh, just I, I was upset. Like I'm not gonna lie, I was upset. Well, yeah. Because right. yeah, I I, I I think the reason is because he retired. He he didn't give anybody any advance notice. He he retired. I think the first or second day of training camp. Right. Like when, when training, I'm sorry. Just out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Just out of nowhere. Like it's not that he was a great player, but 
you know, that, that Pistons team, and I went over this last week, ironically, uh, when we did our 99 redraft, they were in position to have a really good season with, with Stackhouse finally moving into the starting lineup with Hill at the peak of his powers. All they really needed was a center. They didn't even need a really good center. They just needed a guy to, to grab rebounds and, and score in the half court when things slowed down. And Bison Daly could have done that. And he retired. He, he just left town on them. Now, to his credit, he didn't demand anything. It wasn't something against that. He just had decided he was done. And what happened was, to this day, this is still the largest buyout in NBA history. And it's not so much as a buyout as he had five years and $31.5 million left in his contract. For him to free himself completely of the, the of his career, he had to give it all back. He had to give back. Um, well, not essentially give back, but he had to sign away $31.5 million over the next five years that he was owed uh, on the rest of his guaranteed contract. And it, that's just astounding to me. I'm sure he saved his money. I'm sure he made sure that he had enough to be happy for the rest of his life. Because uh, he wasn't that kind of, he was, it's not like he was a big spender or he was, you know, frivolous with his money. He was just, you know, I, I think there's a certain amount of strength, uh, believe it or not, in being able to give back that much uh, in order to uh, do the thing that makes you mentally healthy because I'm sure he was much happier uh, at, after his retirement than he was at any point in his NBA career. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's uh, it's rough, but it only, it only sadly gets rougher from there. Um, in 2002, he and his, uh, his girlfriend, Serena Carlin and, uh, and his brother, Miles DeBoard, uh, who was uh, previously known as Kevin Williams sailed away in uh, July of 2002 from Sahi- from Tahiti on uh, Daly's catamaran, and uh, two days later, um, he he's disappeared. He and his girlfriend they they have been disappeared. The boat is docked in Tahiti, and uh, miles to board is his, uh, Brian Williams' brother, Bison, Bison Daly's brother, is the only one who is still alive. Uh, when the board, uh, the boat docks and uh, the other two are not even on the boat. Um, their bodies have fortunately have never been recovered. Uh, a few days later, well, uh, actually sometime later, uh, DeBoard is um, caught in Tijuana uh, with $152,000 worth of gold in his brother's name. Um, he tried to use his brother's uh, signature. Uh, he has his license. He has his, you know, all his identification, all that. He, and uh, allegedly was trying to, uh, because they did look an awful lot alike, was allegedly trying to use Bison Daly's uh, uh, identity to, well, to get money. Um, you know, so it, it, no one, no one really knows what happened on that boat. Uh, DeBoard would later uh, kill himself. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a totally sad ending and, and it's crazy that, uh, things went this way for, for Bison Daly, but, um, it's obviously one of those things where like, this is, this is, this is what everyone knows about Daly. This is the story that everyone knows. Um, it, he had, he met a tragic end. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, uh, 
yeah, it's it's sad. It's just sad to see something like that for anybody, even if he doesn't want to play basketball anymore. It's like whatever, you know. You you these guys are this this is a reminder that these these players that behind these big contracts and under these jerseys are are human beings. And uh, yeah, and unfortunately, bad bad stuff happens to people sometimes, and and uh, it, it really sucks. Yeah, just. We're retiring around the age of 30 is not, yeah, that's not unheard of in the NBA. And I think he, he did it for, you know, the best of reasons, which is his own mental health, which is, you know, some of the more most important things everyone, all of us should be worrying about. And I, I think it's, yeah. I, I think it's really great that he chose that over just simply making more money and not being happy. So on one hand, yeah, I'm, his his retirement, as brief as it was, I, I'm sure those were some of the best years of his life. It's just, like you said, sometimes bad stuff happens to people, whether they're good or not. And I, the, the way that his life ended was tragic, and it was it's one of the strangest, certainly one of the strangest stories uh, that it might be the single strangest uh, story that we'll ever cover uh, on this podcast. Yeah, I don't think uh, that anything will top this. Yeah, well, I hope not. But, I hope um, not too. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think you can look back on Bison Daly's life in totality and and see it's he's very much uh, two different people. There's the basketball player, and then there's this free spirit that you know very much. He he needed the money to from his one personality to take care of his who he really was and I, I think there's a lot of people out there that can that have jobs that and at every level that can relate to that yeah I mean yeah pretty much pretty much anybody like I I how is everyone you know doing what they want to do <laughs> probably not yeah uh, <laughs> I, I, I think on, on some level believe it or not you know this big six six ten 250 pound uh, NBA former NBA player, I think is one of the more relatable, one of the more human uh, uh, personalities that we've ever covered. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, it. Um, we talked a lot about the inconsistencies and things like that, but you know, um, there seems to be a, a, a reason for this that we can put our fingers on, you know, it's not like a player who just doesn't want to be there or uh, it, you know, is lazy or um, I think that, you know, he just, I, I, you know, I, I can tell you as, as someone who, who has my own mental health issues, like, um, you know, there are certain things that, that I should be doing, but it like hurts me to do them because my anxiety is so bad. Um, you know, I love doing this show with Keith, uh, on our blue chips episode. I, I had a panic attack and we had to cut it short and you can kind of tell at the end that we rushed out of it. Um, but you know, those things happen and, and, and nobody's exempt from that. Even if you're a, a six foot 10 guy who could play basketball. And I, I think that, you know, maybe, maybe some of those, and, and we're speculating obviously, but maybe some yeah. of those nights that Brian was off or Bison was off, maybe he, he just wasn't in the right mental frame and just didn't want to be there. And it, and it like, like I said, it gets to a point where it, it takes you over and it, it hurts. It hurts to, to do the things you don't want to do. Um, so 
yeah uh yeah it's it's a sad way to go and and i wish that um i wish that he was still alive and and uh and living off of the money that he made and doing the things that he wanted to do but unfortunately yeah that is not the the case um but yeah as we do when we cover a player we get to this end point here and uh you know what is beyond beyond what happened to him uh what is bison daly's legacy uh essentially i think bison daly's legacy is and i again i don't want to really come down on the guy but it's almost a, a parallel to what we're seeing now which is if you're going to give somebody i don't want to say he's a cautionary tale but he is uh because he wasn't the right type of person to be committing long-term money to which is a lot of teams saw that and unfortunately the pistons did not um i i think his legacy on one hand you could say that he's a reason why you should always understand the person that you're offering a long-term contract to before you offer it and uh, on the other in the other sense i think he's a he's one of the more fun players to watch when he was really on especially left-handed centers how many left-handed centers can you know that are really good like not many right for some reason yeah there's not many really good left-handed centers bison daly was one of the better left-handed centers i mean look with all due respect to bill russell i'm not going to I know Bill Russell's left-handed. I'm talking about in modern times. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how many guys there are out there. So that that kind of it was like a little quirk to his game that was interesting. Uh, could he play today for a guy that attempted exactly one three-pointer in his career, I think? Um, look, it's not like he couldn't shoot, but as I said before, he didn't like to take bad shots. Like, he was a highly efficient scorer inside the paint. And he was kind of wired that way. So I, could he be like a rich man's Greg Monroe today? And Greg Monroe has really been out of the league for a little while. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that he may not have had an NBA career today. Uh, he would have had to up his consistency a lot more because the skills that he brought to the table in 1991 were not nearly as valued uh, today, 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah, all I'll say in terms of can he play today is, and, and I mentioned it earlier. I just think that for a player that has some mental health issues, it, he would have been a lot better off today because, yeah, the 1990s, you know, is was just that. It's not a great decade, man. When you look back on it, we there was just a lot of rage and a lot of just there was so many issues and people were not nearly as understanding as they are today. Uh, and just for that fact alone, like that, that would have helped. I think, you know, I, I can't tell you whether or not the team like an Orlando Magic or the Denver Nuggets or the Clippers and Pistons had a psychiatrist on or, or any sort of mental health uh, uh, resources on their team back then. I could tell you that they do now. I, I yeah. mean, you know, that's something like that is, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a wealth of, of, uh, you know, resources that he didn't have and would have had today. And again, uh, he would have been a lot more under, people would have been a lot more understanding fans and media would have been a lot more understanding. He would almost be championed. I, I would, because he was very open about, you know, not super open, but he was at least open enough about depression and, and things of that nature. But 
I would say is Ben Simmons uh, been been championed lately? Uh, no. Because Ben Simmons no. cited his own mental health problems with taking time off, but he also wasn't about to give back the money. Uh, I, I think there's the difference is that when when Bison Daly said he needed time for his mental health, he meant it because he yeah. took off an entire year. And you could say it was about money, but he was happy uh, taking time out for himself uh, if someone wasn't paying him extra uh, to do so in 1996. And then with five years and what, 40, what, $31 million left on his contract, uh, once again, he was happy to say, I'm out. Uh, and he put his money where his mouth was. He gave back the money. So when, when Bison Daly does that, I, I certainly believe it. Um Ben Simmons, unfortunately, and again, I, I, I think we are in an era where we're more understanding and knowledgeable about these things. Right. But I still think that there's a there's a segment where like people are accusing Ben Simmons of using it as a crutch uh, for whatever reason. It, and it's not, not fair, but at the same time, I don't think it's necessarily celebrated uh, or championed because there are people that are still not comfortable talking about mental health uh especially as it pertains to pro athletes that are making you know tens of millions of dollars right not not to make this the ben simmons episode but like i it's i think it's a pretty different situation well okay well first off i'll say this um he has a really bad playoff performance and this is where social media like just lo just lobs himself at at him like specifically um the whole world's coming at him and uh and for some reason that like people weren't just able to let that go like it i've seen it, it happens to players sometimes where like the twitter will just like attack this player and will never let it down they'll yeah. never let whatever happened in that playoff series or whatever go and i don't think that ben and i how look there's no way that you can handle that well but Ben did not handle that well. He doubled down on what he felt his ability was. And, you know, he talked as if he was better than every player on the floor. And then he took the time off, you know? So yeah. like, and I, I think that that rubbed people the wrong way. And, and I, he, look, he should have taken the time off because he was clearly, uh, affected by that that playoff performance and affected by the way that everybody responded to that playoff performance and Philadelphia was clearly not the place he should have been during that time um, and and I guess it makes it even worse that now that Simmons is playing he's playing pretty poorly so yeah. now people are dunking on him even more like it just so yeah I, I just I just um, I don't know if 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 Ben Simmons would have just simply come out and say like I'm having a hard time right now, um, and and it's affecting my play, I think I think it would have been it would have been much better received. But instead, he didn't do that, and I think that's why there's a big difference there. But but yeah, that's that's my thought on Ben Simmons. Uh, I still think I still think there's a great player there. By the way, I I think he's a great defender, and I, I just think he needs to go play somewhere like. Uh, I don't know. He he need, he needs to go somewhere where like he he the pressure is not on him. Well, the, the problem is as long as he makes that max money, that pressure is never. It doesn't matter where he plays. There's, yeah. there's going to be pressure on him. 
He needs to go to Spurs. He needs like San Antonio would be a good team for him. I think with Pop, I think that that would be a good, a good thing for him. But this is the Bison Daily uh, episode, and and uh, that's that's going to do it for for Bison's story. Uh, is there any moment? I guess before we, because I don't want to leave it on a down moment. Is there any any moment of Bison Daily that you think that people need to go look up? Like, I know he had a really great dunk against Matumbo. Yeah, there's there's no necessarily uh, moment. Uh, yeah, he did have a dunk on Matumbo. I remember the game against Phoenix where I think went to triple overtime uh, at the Palace in '98. I don't know if people can look it up because YouTube has scrubbed most full games from their library. But where he, I, I he had essentially one basket where he drove baseline and tied the game. Uh, or no, no, it was. At the end of the the third overtime, where he had one time where he drove the lane, gave the Pistons the lead in the last minute, and then hit a fifteen foot jumper after the Suns had retied it to essentially win the game. And then there's one more, uh, which is I think the only real game winner that he ever hit uh, was against Miami, uh, where he ran a pick and roll with Grant Hill in 1999, and he and this will I'll, I'll put this in a because uh, I have a. Bison Daily highlight reel ready to go as, as this episode ends. So it'll be on my timeline at Charlotte TN28. Uh, but basically, he he gets this uh, pick and roll with Grant Hill where he rolls to the rim and just throws down this, this thunderous dunk with like a second or two left in the, the Pistons upset Miami. Uh, but he, yeah, he, he was usually a, a reliable player, believe it or not, uh, in the clutch because that's when his focus was the highest. Well, oh, and we'll 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 leave it at that. Uh, definitely go to uh, Keith's Twitter tomorrow and uh, or today rather when you're listening to this, and uh, and, and watch that sizzle reel because uh, yeah, let's let's honor the guy a little bit. And uh, yeah, next week we will be back. We're getting back into the draft uh, world. We're gonna do the very very exciting 2000 draft. So. Get get your uh your your canned food and your bottled water ready. We're going into the millennium. It's Y2K time. I don't know. Is the computer gonna switch those numbers over, Keith, or is the planes gonna start falling from the sky? <laughs> yeah. Um by the end of the episode, maybe I'm going to wish that it had. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 we, we talk about deep draft classes all the time. This was by far the shallowest draft class yes. we will probably ever do. <laughs> uh, I will be surprised if Mateen Cleaves doesn't come up at some point. Oh, man. Do you really think Gleaves is going to wind up going? Uh, I hope not. I, I, I hope I can find 14 better players than Mateen Cleaves in this draft class. It'll be a challenge. Okay, well, uh, just just you know, to give you guys a little bit of a preview, we got the the knuckleheads are in this draft: Quentin Richardson, Darius Miles, uh, Kenyon Martin is the number one pick in this draft. You got Michael Red, Jamal Crawford, who, geez, it feels like he's still playing. Uh, Boris Peterson, Mike Miller, who winds up winning the Rookie of the Year this season. It, it's uh, the 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 Stromile Swift. Remember Stromile Swift? Well, he's in this draft. Deshaun Stevenson, it's it's a really interesting one. Um I, I look forward to is Chris is this the Chris Heron draft? No, that I was, think uh, no, that was the actual I think that was 99 was the Chris 99? Heron. Oh man. I was oh geez, I had a whole thing. I was gonna draft him because 
I like to do stuff like that. But uh, anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're we got the 2000 draft next next uh, next week. We tried to get people uh, to be a guest on this show. We actually tried to get the knuckleheads to be the guests on this show. It didn't work out. We'll try again later some other time. But we'll see you guys next week for the 2000 NBA draft.